Well, good evening, everyone. Um, thank you. Um, guys, as Christoph said, we're going to be uh, looking through the first uh, letter that Paul wrote to Timothy over the next few weeks um, and months here on Sunday evening services. And I don't know how you feel about that. Um, I'm actually really excited about looking at 1 Timothy with you. Um, 1 Timothy is a funny book, isn't it? It's, um, sometimes we often associate it with very controversial verses or difficult bits to understand. Maybe you've looked at it in the past and thought this is a bit boring, lots of very irrelevant details. But at the same time, 1 Timothy is a letter that's got some of the most famous verses in the Bible in it. Um, even just as I've been living in East Belfast for a couple of weeks, I've found that it's one of those uh, books that finds itself on the way of church signboards, outside church signs. So the church just down the road has got a verse from 1 Timothy saying there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's another church uh, just uh, down towards Castlereagh that's got another verse from 1 Timothy. So 1 Timothy is a funny letter. It's got these big gospel verses in it. And then it's also got some very practical stuff about widows, um, about teaching in the church and that kind of thing. But actually, I found, as I've looked at 1 Timothy, that it's a really re- rewarding book uh, to look at in detail. And I hope that we'll find, over these next few weeks, uh, that we uh, are really rewarded as we dig into 1 Timothy uh, together. I say together because we're going to do it um, a bit more interactively than you might be used to. Uh, we're going to have a bit of upfront teaching from myself and Christoph and Richard. But we're also going to spend a bit of time in smaller groups, discussing and chewing over and trying to pull out for ourselves what Paul is saying uh, to us. Uh, Tonight, we're going to start that off with an overview of the whole letter. We're actually, in a few moments, going to have the whole letter read to us from the front. Um, And that's to really give ourselves a taste uh, of the letter, to help ourselves get a bearing in it, uh, so that as we begin our studies in detail next week, we'll have a sense of where we're going. Um, And so as I introduce the letter, I don't want to say too much, really. Um, I want us to kind of listen to it with our own ears and to be able to get our own ideas um, as we engage with it. There is just one thing that I want to spend a few minutes uh, talking about that I think will help us as we approach this letter. Uh, And that is a conviction about God's word. I'm sorry to start with a little bit of theory, but I think this is going to help us. Uh, For some of us, this may well be revision, uh, but I think it will be useful as we come to understand 1 Timothy. So here's the conviction. Uh, The conviction is that God speaks to us today as his people by speaking to us through what he spoke to his people in the Bible. I'll say that again. God speaks to us today through what he spoke to his people uh, that is recorded for us in the Bible. So if we can have the first slide up, there it is. Uh, God speaks to us now, not so much directly, but authoritatively and clearly uh, to what he spoke to his people in the past. And so as we look at what he spoke to those people in the past, that's how we understand what God is saying to us today. Now, let me unpack that a little bit. Um, One error we could make uh, is to assume that the Bible was written directly to us here as Christians in the 21st century. Um, But that would be be a slight mistake. Uh, This conviction uh, says that we don't come to any part of the Bible and think, okay, God's just sort of teleported this down for Christians in the 21st century. It is for us, but only as we understand that it was firstly for people in the past. Now, we, we know this, I think, don't we? The whole Bible is written to people in specific situations, and particularly the letters. If you've looked at any of Paul's letters before, you'll know that you can't really understand them properly without getting a feel for who they're written to. Uh, think about the letter to the Galatians. That was all kicked off with a discussion about circumcision, that Paul felt like he had to pick up his pen 
and write to the Galatians to help them understand how the gospel was getting twisted in this issue of circumcision. Uh, Or 1 Thessalonians. That's a letter that Paul wrote to a very new church uh, that he hadn't been able to stay with for very long. And so he wrote to give them some basic instruction in Christianity and to help them to keep going as Christians. Um, Someone said to me that the Presbyterians tend to stick to teaching Paul's letters because they're kind of arid doctrine. Now, I don't know if that's right or not. And you can kind of understand what he's saying. Um, There aren't so many stories, perhaps, in the letters. But they're not just up here, kind of arid doctrine that just exists in a timeless warp. They're on the ground, practical uh, applications of the gospel to real-life situations. And so if we're going to understand what Paul is saying to us in 1 Timothy and what God is saying to us, we're going to need to understand what God was saying to the people back there in Ephesus before we can understand what he's saying to us here in East Belfast. Uh, So it's a bit like we're listening in to a conversation between God through his apostle Paul and his people. And that's important that we listen carefully to that conversation. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you sort of listen in to a bit of a conversation and you pick up a few words and you think you know what the conversation's about and so you jump in and you say something And then you discover that actually you've got the wrong end of the stick totally and you'd misunderstood the conversation. Well, we're going to need to listen into this conversation carefully so that we can understand what it's going to mean for us today so that we don't get the wrong end of the stick. But, but we also mustn't make the opposite mistake. We also mustn't think that this is a conversation that just exists in Ephesus that's only relevant to the past. And actually, that might be a particular issue as we think about 1 Timothy. Uh, So let's take a a first look at the letter to see why that might be an issue. If you take a Bible and turn to chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, uh, and we're going to look at the first four verses very quickly. So 1 Timothy, chapter 1, and let me just read verses 1 to 4. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. Well, we'll break off there and we'll have the whole reading of the letter in a moment. But even at a glance, you can see that this is a letter by Paul, and it's not initially to a church, but to an individual, this guy Timothy. And already we can see that Timothy isn't just an ordinary believer. He is an ordinary believer. But if you look at verse 4, you can see that he's somebody with a specific charge. Uh, Sorry, verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. Uh, And so we may be thinking, well, how can can we get from this stuff to Timothy to us today? Because I'm not Timothy, and I don't have a specific command from Paul that I need to kind of tell false teachers not to teach their stuff. So we might be thinking, well, is there actually going to be anything relevant for me here in 1 Timothy? Well, I think there is. And if you turn with me now to the end of the letter, we'll see why that is. So just turn to chapter 6, verse 20. 
So Paul's rounding off the letter and he says this, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so, being, in so doing have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. So Paul's saying to Timothy, okay, uh, here's your final thing, hold on to what I'm saying. But then in the final sentence, Paul says this, he says, grace be with you. And if you've got a different translation of the Bible, it might say, grace be with you all. And the reason is that that you there is plural. You can't tell that in English. But you can, if you're, if you're speaking Northern Irish, you can say, grace be with you. So that's what you kind of say. Because he's saying, grace be with you, the whole church. So actually, 1 Timothy is not addressed to the church in Ephesus. But it is still for them. They're going to have to listen in to this conversation between Paul and Timothy and work out what the implications of all this is for them. God is expecting 1 Timothy to have a wider relevance, not just for Timothy, but for the church who hears this. Uh, and so here's the slide. Um, we're going to actually have to pretend that we're a bit like the Ephesian church as we listen in to what God is saying to Timothy. And I'm really confident that we'll be able to do that. In his second follow-up letter to Timothy, Paul says that the whole Bible, even the bits that aren't directly addressed to us, is useful to instruct us and equip us for righteousness. So we can be really confident that God has given us First Timothy. Uh, as he's written it to Timothy, uh, it will be really helpful for the whole church. Well, we're about to have our reading. Uh, but as we do, we're going to need to tune in to that conversation that's going on. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to listen to the reading and then take a little bit of time in small groups where we're sitting to just discuss what we've been hearing. And I've got a couple of questions that are going to help us to do that. You might have noticed already that there seems to be some false teaching kicking around in the church in Ephesus. And so as we come to this conversation, it might be good to start by asking, what issues are confronting Timothy in the church in Ephesus? Um, and then secondly, we might need to start by imagining that we are Timothy, just to start with. Um, and we might want to ask ourselves, what would be our first impressions as we're hearing this letter? What do you think if we were Timothy, we'd be thinking our, our job is and what our job is like? So those are the two questions that I thought might be helpful. Uh, you should have a pen and a bit of paper uh, somewhere near you. You might find that helpful to just jot down some notes, uh, maybe on those two questions, um, so that we'll have some good times in our groups in a moment. Um, but that's enough just to tee up the letter, I think. So if I can invite the readers to come up, and we'll get going with the reading. and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, 
but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the truth, true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission, and do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert 
or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labour and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all men, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents. For this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions too 
so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus, they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those who work, whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and to urge in them. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. 
Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you were made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honour and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. Well, thanks very much to our, our readers. Uh, there'll be lots there that we haven't really got yet, but hopefully we've heard enough to begin to have a go looking at those questions. So let's take the next 10 minutes or so, perhaps a little bit under, to just turn in groups of three or four or five and have a go at just discussing with each other what our first impressions of the letter are, uh, perhaps using those couple of questions uh, as a guide. And then if, in a few minutes, uh, I'll call us back together and we'll feed back together on what we found. Great. Uh, well done, everyone. Let's just come back together there. I don't know how far you feel like you got with those questions, but it'd be great to just get a sense of what uh, the groups are saying uh, so that we can... Um, the guys at the back are going to write this up for us on the, on the PowerPoint, and Richard's going to come around with the handheld mic just so we can hear what everyone's saying. So let's start with that first question then um, about the issues in the church. What issues were confronting Timothy in the church in Ephesus? Anyone want to start us off with some issues in Ephesus? Just give us that again, Stanley. Thank People you. who love to be involved in disputes. Yeah, yeah, that's chapter one stuff, isn't it? They love the uh, controversies. Yeah, they just love talking about words and that kind of thing. So let's have some stuff about um, kind of futile controversies, if we could, on there. Yeah, that's a, that's a problem for the church. Yeah. Anyone work out what any of those controversies were about? The, the law. Thanks, Stanley. Yeah. Um, brilliant. Any other issues confronting Timothy in the church in Ephesus? Women. Women. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So we've got some stuff about women and also about men. Um, both of them seem to not be doing quite what they're meant to be doing. So yeah, men and women's issues. Yeah, brilliant. Other things? Richard's just going to come round and put the microphone in front of your face and then you'll have to say, yeah. Um... In chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, I suppose what in our language we would call backsliders within the church, um, but Paul's actually very strong and says they shipwrecked their faith. Yeah, he's very strong, isn't he? Yeah. So there seems to be people who have actually given up on following Jesus. So that's a pretty big issue. 
Yeah, so it'll be good to know why that is, um, and we'll find out hopefully as we go on. So yeah, people giving up on their faith or something like that. Brilliant. Other issues? Colin. Um, hypocrisy in the front that uh, it says that as much as your good deeds are on show, those that are not of good deed will also be, it talks about that at the end of chapter 5. Um, yeah, so there's a sense of Paul saying there's going to be this kind of judgment and good deeds are going to be shown and the people who are saying they've got good deeds and they're not good deeds is going to get shown up. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. And just the other thing was uh, hierarchy. There seems to be, even within the church network, on saying, like, don't let people look down on you because they're young. Yeah. Um, so it yeah. could be an, an aspect of Timothy's not being fully accepted yeah. into the church and into the, uh, into the atmosphere. And then also hierarchy in the front of greed in terms of finances yeah. and what they own and possessions and that being the priority. Yeah, brilliant. So we've got hierarchies in terms of people are looking down on Timothy, maybe. Hierarchies in terms of financial uh, status. Did anyone notice any other kind of hierarchy type things going on in the letter? Tough question. Anyone see anything? Um, you can see at the start these people want to be teachers of the law, like Stanley was saying. So that sounds like maybe people are kind of wanting to raise themselves up above other people, talking about genealogy, saying, oh, I'm related to this person, or I'm related to that person. So can we, yeah, put elitism or something like that, yeah. Well, no, that's fine. That's great. Sorry, that's me being petty. No, you're fine. You're fine, Paul. Sorry. Okay, great. Yeah, so lots of hierarchies in the church. Very interesting. And then you've got all this stuff about the widows, haven't you? These people who are maybe less important looking members of the church society. How are we going to do with them? Lots of stuff about honor and respect within the church community. Okay, good. That's pretty good going. Uh, let me just see if I had any others. Oh, yeah. Um, Paul at the back was saying um, there's lots of stuff about leadership in the church. Um, what does that imply about uh, the, the church leadership? It kind of implies it might not be very good. Um, some of you might know that in Acts, when Paul is saying goodbye to the uh, elders of the church in Ephesus for the very last time, he actually makes a prophecy. And he says that after his departure, there are going to be fierce wolves coming from among you. So he's saying that some elders are going to go astray in the future and start teaching false things. And that seems to be what's going on here in Ephesus by the time that Paul's writing the letter. Elders have gone bad. There's bad leadership within the church. So if we could put something about bad leadership um, up there as well. Okay, so with that in mind, let's uh, have a think about Timothy's task then. Uh, what were your first, sort of first impressions of how Timothy would feel uh, as he reads the letter? I think Timothy would have been thinking, um, I'm in the wrong place and I need to get out of here. Okay, yeah, yeah, why do you say that? Um, it's putting a lot on our shoulders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People agree with that? Would you feel like you had a pretty big job to do Timothy? Yeah. What, can you, what, what sort of words kind of gave you that impression? Um, it, it couldn't be an easy task for, for a young person yeah. to, to, to actually challenge the leadership of, 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 of the church yeah. uh, and point out, nobody likes being pointed out to them that they're, that, that they're in the wrong. Brilliant, brilliant. Sorry, we need to, move, we need to keep moving. Sorry, I, I want to keep this conversation going, but we need to keep going. Uh, great. Any other, any other sort of impressions of what Timothy's charge I believe are charged with... I thought it was quite prescriptive in places. A lot of things where he's told very directly, do this, do that. It's, it's quite detailed instructions. Yeah, and it's quite pointed, isn't it? Paul's not sort of putting these words and saying, tell these guys this, tell these guys this. Yeah, very concrete, yeah. And anyone get any sense of why Timothy's doing this? Timothy's 
Um, sorry, I'll talk again, but uh, it seems fairly obvious that Timothy's been gifted with particular skills in leadership, and uh, it talks about at the start of chapter 3 where it says you've been given a noble task, um, and it's a noble task to take on leadership, um, but he'd feel massively overwhelmed. I mean, the fact that he's got to A, keep himself in check, because it talks so much about keeping leadership at the forefront and having good leadership, but also then trying to address issues. It's, he's keeping himself and others in check, which is yeah. Yeah, a double task. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, so he's got this noble task uh, and his leadership, um, uh, and so that's a big job. Uh, there's actually a place in the letter that Paul goes to to really uh, explain why he's writing this letter to Timothy. Thanks, we'll, we're done with it. Um, so if you could just turn to chapter 3, verse 14. Uh, Paul and Timothy, and I think that will give us a feel for why it is that um, 1 Timothy is so important. Uh, we can uh, switch the slide up as well. Thank you, Paul. So, um, uh, if, some, if we're, having a, we're talking about a conversation here, aren't we, between Paul and Timothy, and intuitively, I guess, if we understand why a conversation is happening, we're much more likely to get the right end of the stick and not misinterpret what's going on. You know, if someone's having a serious chat versus just telling jokes, you know that you're not going to get the wrong end of the stick if you know which one of those it is. I um, mean, it's the same with the Bible. I um, mean, in this letter, Paul's told us why he's having the chat. Um, and so we're just going to have a look at that now for a few moments, uh, just as we close this taster of First Timothy. So let me read uh, verses 14 to 16 of chapter 3. Paul says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed... You will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached upon among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Well, Paul says, I'd like to come and visit you, Timothy, but in case I can't make it, in case I'm delayed, I'm going to tell you now in the letter what I'd like to say to you, what I'd like you to know. And did you see what it is that Paul wants Timothy to know? Verse 15, I want you to know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So the whole letter's built around this aim. This is why Paul is being so particular in his instructions to Timothy. So let's try and understand it. And I want to use two key words just to help us understand uh, this phrase. The first is household. Paul says that the church is God's household. Now that, at one level, just means that the church is God's family. And so here at Kirkpatrick, we are God's household. We're his family. And that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? We're his sons and daughters here. But we're not just a family, and that's it. In the world of the Roman Empire, the household was also where a lot of the business took place. Uh, You'd have all the slaves living within the household and all the sons and daughters. And, And so Paul, when he says that we're God's household, is saying that we're a family with a purpose. He's saying that we are part of God's family business. And that's where the second uh, key word comes in. 
And the second key word is pillar there in verse 15. Uh, Paul says that as God's household, we are the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, truth just means the gospel of Jesus. And Paul's saying then that the church's role is to be the pillar and foundation of the gospel. Now, we might think about that and think, hang on, Paul, you've got that wrong, haven't you? Surely the gospel is the foundation of the church, not the church is the foundation of the gospel. Well, it's true that the church is, the gospel is the foundation of the church, but Paul's making a slightly different point here. The point Paul is making is that the church has the task of being the pillar of God's truth in the eyes of the world. And if we just turn around where we're sitting and look at the pillar there in the centre of the church, we've actually got an illustration of what Paul's talking about. Uh, So that pillar, or those two pillars there, are basically holding up the gallery. Um, So you can imagine on a Sunday morning, if those pillars started to creak and crumble Uh, suddenly the whole gallery might come crashing down and all the people who have arrived a little bit late to church might suddenly find that they're being crashed down uh, on the rest of us. It'd be a bit of a disaster. Well, Paul's saying that there's something similar is happening between the church and the gospel. He's saying that if the pillar, the church, is broken, if it's not doing its job, then God's truth is going to come crashing down and it's not going to be seen and held up in the world, the way it should be. But if the church is living up to its role, then the gospel will be held out and supported and promoted in the world, and it will be seen by everyone to be the good and beautiful gospel that it is. That's a big role that God has given the church, isn't it? God our Saviour, that's how God keeps referring to God. He says God our Saviour has given the church this role, He's made us, here at Kirkpatrick, into the pillar and the foundation of his truth. And that's why we've got this letter. That's why Paul is so particular when he's writing to Timothy. That's why Timothy's got such a big job that he's going to have to labour and strive for. And that's why why we need this letter here at Kirkpatrick today. We need to know how, as part of God's family business we're going to be able to live up to the role that God has given us. We don't have time to look at verse 16 now, unfortunately, uh, but it's our poem all about Jesus. Um, And Paul's put it here to show that a right understanding of the gospel uh, is going to be the thing that produces churches that promote the gospel in the right way to the outside world. Uh, We'll see as we go through stage by stage uh, lots of practical detail on how the gospel is going to do that for us in lots of those different areas that we heard about earlier. But just now, as we close, I just want to leave us with one thought, really. And that is that this is a noble task. It's a noble task to be the church. I wonder how you think about the church. Lots of people today, I guess, would see it as a dying institution, shedding people everywhere. Other people might see it as a social club, a kind of place to come to keep the flame alive, but not much good for much more than that, sadly. Others of us may feel like the church is a good place for us to come and feel like we're useful and needed. I was thinking about this for me, and I was thinking that as someone who's been involved in churches for a little while now, the church can often feel like quite a human place to be, quite flawed, 
Now, that's not a reflection on my experience here at Kirkpatrick. Uh, that's just a reflection, really, on my experience in churches generally that I've been part of. People are selfish, aren't they? Churches are funny old things. People push things, and you're not really quite sure why they're pushing them. Uh, stuff gets attention because it's the flavor of the month, rather than because it really seems to be what God's saying. And I find when I start seeing the church as quite a human institution, I find it actually quite tempting to then just start looking for myself uh, in the church and my own interests. And I think that's what's happening in Ephesus with some of that false teaching. People were getting really into moving up the social hierarchy in the church. They were into elitism. Um, People were interested in getting what they could, getting rich quick from the church. And Shockingly, really, I guess when I look at the church like that as a human place, I start seeing those tendencies in myself. I start thinking about worldly ideas, like my status in the church. How am I perceived by other people? I start getting annoyed when people ask me to serve in ways that maybe I don't fancy serving because it's kind of taking away from my time and it's not really showing me out to be who I should be. And I wonder if you can see any of that in yourself, uh, in the ways that you're involved in the church. Lots of us have been around at church for a while, I know. And it might be just worth asking ourselves at the start of this year, as we're all busy getting involved in various things, whether any of the joy is starting to slip away a little bit. Maybe we've seen how human the church can be at times. Uh, and we're starting to think, well, hang on, what's the point of all this? Well, the antidote that Paul gives to that is to remember just what it is that makes the church such a big deal. And that is that we're part of God's family business. So it's not like um, you walk around Ballyhackamore and you see uh, just next to us you've got the Barclays Bank and the branch of the Barclays. And then across the road you've got the Oxfam charity shop. And you know, you could start thinking, couldn't you, that well here we are um, in Kirkpatrick and we're just another branch of PCI and there's another one down the road. But we're not a corporation or a charity. We're a church. We're the church of the living God. We're part of his family business. We're part of his desire to save the world through the message of Jesus. And that means it's not about us, doesn't it? It's about the job of saving the world. God, our saviour, wants all people to be saved. That's one of the big verses that Paul says in 1 Timothy. And ultimately, that's why we're here still. If God was happy with um, Kirkpatrick and said, okay, you know, all the Christians that I really want are are here already. Uh, I've got enough. He'd just end the world right now, wouldn't he? And come back and we'd all be a lot happier in a lot of ways. But God says, no, it's not enough. The number of Christians at the moment is not enough. I want more. And so that's why we're still here. Somebody once said that the church is the only society uh, on earth that exists for the benefit of non-members. I think there's a lot of truth in that. We are a family. We are to be together and to support one another. But ultimately, we're still here for the purpose of this task of being a pillar and foundation of God's saving truth to the world. That's why we're here. I don't know about you, but when I start seeing the church like that again and reminding myself that that's why we're here, I get a huge kick. I start thinking, yes, I do want to be part of this church. Yes, I do want to serve. I do want to throw myself 
into helping with what is happening here. I do want to be part of God's family business. I wonder, can you think of a bigger, more glorious, more noble task than being part of God's family business? Being part of promoting his saving truth to the world. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? But actually, that just raises one final small thought, just as we leave. Um, And that is that it's a big task. And so I guess we're going to need God's help as we do it. How do we actually do that? How do we be this pillar and foundation of the truth? I guess as we think about that, we're going to see that it's not going to be just a case of turning up on a Sunday, just as we always have done, and assuming that will be all right. Or just serving the way we've always served. Or just living the way we've always lived. We're going to need some help to work out how we can be the pillar and foundation of the truth. And actually, I know as I've been chatting to people here at Kirkpatrick and getting to know uh, you guys, that many of us are asking exactly these kind of questions. How can we become a church that promotes God's truth in the world? How exactly can our discipleship group live in such a way that the gospel will seem to be good in the areas where we're living? Well, the good news is, that these are exactly the questions that 1 Timothy was written to answer. Um, And so as we take a closer look over the next few weeks at 1 Timothy, um, let's be praying. Uh, Let's be praying that we get some answers to those questions. Uh, Let's pray that we will see how we ought to behave in God's household. Uh, Let's pray that our church will become more and more a church that is the pillar and foundation of the truth that God has called us to be here in our community. Well, as we close for the time being, let's pray for some of those things now. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you very much that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we praise you that that message of the gospel is something that will bring people uh, to know you as their Father and bring people into your family. And Father, we're grateful that you brought us into your family. And Father, we're grateful that you've brought us into a family that has a purpose, that has an aim. And so we pray tonight, as your family, that you would be more and more shaping us into the church that you call us to be. We pray that as we study uh, 1 Timothy over these next few weeks, that you'd be helping us to see how we ought to behave in your church, so that we can be more and more the pillar and foundation of the truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.